2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. I am Klaus Yoder, and with me, as usual, is my good friend and co-heretic, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing on this beautiful January day? I'm super excited that it's not raining because it's been doing a lot of raining lately, and some of my California neighbors have really suffered. I have gotten away completely unscathed. Um but I'm thinking about those folks who are losing their homes and losing ways to get to those they care about. I guess it's not a coincidence that what we're talking about today, the 2017 film First Reformed, is a film that centers climate change and you're in the midst of a, another outcome of climate change, weather disasters in California right now. So um, it's like, you wish you could say it's a coincidence. It's just, it's, it's constantly with us now. So you can't, you know, it's coincidence doesn't really quite capture what's going on with that. But yeah, um, timely, too timely. Yeah, mm-hmm. so First Reformed, doing a film club episode here. Uh, this is directed by Paul Schrader, who is more famous as a screenwriter than as a director, though he does have a number of directing credits to his name. He's his, probably his most famous films that he's written are Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Both of those are collaborations with the director Martin Scorsese in a kind of neo-noir like style and with Robert De Niro as, as the lead in, in both of those films as, as, as the boxer uh, Jake LaMotta and as Travis. I think, yeah, his name is Travis in Taxi Driver. That's funny. It's funny you've never seen it. And uh, it, yeah, it's, we've got a Travis. Both movies... There, maybe we'll get into the similarities of, of what Schrader's doing in a second. A quick bit of background on Schrader. He was raised in the Grand Rapids area of Michigan in an extremely strict Calvinist household. Did not see a film until the age 17. Majored in philosophy and theology. Has a very serious kind of Protestant theological pedigree. And after college went into went to film school and became a scholar of film and then became a writer of films sort of made that that incredible ascent in in that way from being a, a scholar to a practitioner he, his films like there's a lot of like existential despair scattered across the his collection of films uh and sort of people a lot of like lonely characters losing their minds and coming up against a hostile world. Uh, so that's, that's a theme well, that carries across. Good thing, we don't, yeah. good thing we don't see any of that in First Reformed. It's such a cheery, happy movie uh, featuring a central character who is super social and well-integrated into you know, his community, his job. Uh, he seems to be doing great. And he doesn't have like a drinking problem or any other. Really, he has no problems. So. Yeah, let's talk about him for a second. So that would be the Reverend Ernst Toller, or Toller, depending how you want to pronounce that, who's named after a real person, a playwright from the Weimar World War One era in Germany, who was a like anarcho-socialist who led a revolt and created the first People's Soviet in Bavaria and was imprisoned for a long time, got out of prison, came to the United States following the Nazi rise to power in 33, 
and committed suicide with pictures of children who had been killed in the Spanish Civil War on his desk, um, you know, as, as he died. So, yeah, a character who, who commits suicide and is, like, sort of also, like, very, very uh, caught up in despair and while battling an evil world as an idealist and, and all of these things. So that's who, that's who the main character is named for. The, the main character is played by Ethan Hawke. Do you have any favorite Ethan Hawke movies, Travis, aside from this one? Um, I don't, and none in particular comes to mind right now, but I will say I was very impressed. I think, did Carrie, my partner, I think he said that he, um, he's aged well. He has, oh no, what he said is, that man has good genes, he said, <laughs> and I can't disagree. He did a good job. He's playing a, a 46, 40 something, 46, 46 year old, um, in his early fifties. And you know, one would never know. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think like what my favorite Ethan Hawke film was. I, I, the thing that's comes to mind most was from what I saw in high school, which was his version of Hamlet, which I really didn't like, but like he's been, as I was going through, I'm like, Oh, he's been in some real bangers. I mean, I'm not a, a dead poet society fan, but like he does a good job in that as like, sort of like one of these, you know, the, the, the hot youth new generation in, in Hollywood in like the late eighties. And He's in Gattaca, which is a really great sci-fi 90s film. And he's in Training Day with Denzel Washington as the rookie. Co- I mean, so he's got some he's, – he's done a lot, and he's continuing to work. I, th- I think you're, you're missing his most important credit, though, uh, as Batman and Bruce Wayne in 10 episodes of Bat Wheels Bat- 2022. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the nat- it's pretty natural to go from Hamlet to Bruce Wayne somehow. Yeah, that makes sense makes, to me. It does actually track, doesn't it? Yeah. I was interested in doing this film for many reasons. It deals with climate change. It deals with a kind of Christian biblical idiom around apocalypse. And it also tracks with some of our other media samplings that we've done, which really features like really churchy plots and characters. So we did Midwinter of the Spirit recently. We did Midnight Mass recently. Of course, The Exorcist. How did you, like, in terms of a performance of A Man of the Cloth, how did you find uh, Mr. Hawk's performance, Travis, as, as an expert? I would say it was uneven. There were, I mean, in terms of the quality of his, let's say, pastoral care, I would say he had good moments and then he had some some epic failures as well. And in that sense, that made him seem like a real um, that seemed like a made him seem like a real practitioner. Liturgically, um, I think I've been hanging out with Episcopalians for long enough that other liturgies are less familiar, the sort of looser approach. And so um, we'll talk more about his uh affiliation with a local much larger church perhaps a mega church um later but i couldn't really some of the liturgical language seemed like someone was just pulling from a vague memory especially when there was a reading from the bible i was like that's pretty standard language across protestants the way that they uh fold that into a service and the language was a little weird Mm -hmm. um but yeah, minor stuff, really. Um, what were you thinking of in particular, though? Uh, I was just, like, in terms of other, like, maybe how 
not just not necessarily just like how good a job the character is doing as a priest which is which is something to discuss <laughs> but like how well you think ethan hawk like did as as a as a kind of clerical character did he pull it off like did because i i found oh, like his yeah. sort of like vocal intonations and his sort of his style like pretty convincing and my own experience with protestant ministers is not super extensive but uh, you know it, it, he 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 seemed to be possessed by the spirit of like the kind of Kierkegaardian Protestant minister to me pretty well. That's funny. Um, I guess bear in mind that I'm from suburban Houston, Texas. And that, so my first experiences were not in an evangelical tradition, but surrounded by evangelicalism. And I would say this kind of loner Kierkegaardian man of the cloth is just not something I grew up with a lot of examples of. Um, insofar as I'm familiar with the stereotype, yeah. Um, I think he brought that, he, he moved from what could have been very easily a stereotypical performance and made it nuanced and made it interesting. And I really liked that. Um, yeah, so, totally. Yes. You mentioned, and this is a little bit of a way of setting up his character, this sort of strange church situation. And I, I had a question about this in, in the sheet, but like the, the part of the framing of the plot is that Ernst Reverend Toller is the minister at a church that is basically a museum that's been acquired by what I would call a, a kind of local mega church in the Albany, New York area. And our first moments of the film are there's no music we have the title First Reformed in quotation mark. Uh, I found it a little annoying. It was in quotation marks, but whatever. But like really incredible opening shot. There's no music. All you hear is the sound of like the wind going through these leafless trees. And we come into the door and come to the service. And I agree, the service seemed itself seemed a little bit scattered and not totally coherent as, a, as an actual liturgy. But he is doing this job basically this this mega church pastor reverend jeffers played by cedric the entertainer very well is oh my gosh yes is, is the amazing performance it's like the pastor and like business executive of this larger church basically ethan hawk's character is kind of like treading water he's giving tours he's still doing a service there attended by like five people and i was like oh wow yeah this feels like familiar as like someone who goes to episcopalian services <laughs> so that part was believable <laughs> um but uh you know he's also abundant life abundant life thank you yeah the, the mega church is abundant life he is doing this after some personal tragedy he is the father of a son who was killed in the second gulf war second war in iraq his family was had a military tradition he was a, a chaplain in, in in the armed services and he encouraged his son to continue the family tradition it, the death of his son ended his marriage and he was sort of adrift and that's when he was rescued by uh by cedric the entertainer's character so that's like well, that's kind of by, res yeah, quote unquote rescued he also he, there's this step in between though where he has this encounter with reading certain authors and Merton um, like prominent among them, but also the cloud of unknowing. I saw that, and yeah. um, I, I'm so interested in 
that spiritual awakening with what our, you know, Catholic sources and then going to the mega church and finding himself. And then he's in this, we get this image of him in cassock and surplice, um, but yet giving communion, not what you wear in that service in my tradition, um, in this Dutch reformed, it's just such an interesting little, uh, an unexpected detour. Um, how, why would that lead you there? I don't know. I mean, I think just, just total being like, I think just, just sort of being snatched up from the point of ruin, I would think. Um, and we, you mentioned yeah. his alcoholism, he, he, which he seems like pretty self-opaque about through the whole thing. He, you know, he's sort of steadily drinking. And one of the framing devices, I think the first time we hear him speak in the film, he's talk. it's a voiceover as he's writing in a journal and he's going to do a year of keeping a journal and it's going to be unedited. And his rationale for it, which he describes as an experiment, it seems as a way of getting back into a kind of spiritual practice. Like he feels disconnected from God. His prayer life is dry, as they say, for the people who pray say. And he's doing this to, to kind of reconnect with God and, and to sort of have another angle at a spiritual life. But he, and he tr- he's trying to be like sort of brutally self-honest and he, he you know, not spare himself as a writer of this journal, but like, he doesn't really register the fact that he has a serious drinking problem. He's also pretty in denial about how poor his health is. The, the film suggests that he's, that he has stomach cancer and, or, you know, or at least that with not other things too. Um, so is, yeah. Is he in, is he in denial? That's such an interesting question. Is it denial or is it, that he doesn't recognize that that's what's going on or is he looking for a kind of um discipline is he trying to punish himself um his body spiritually for some reason to atone for you know atonement of some kind that i wasn't super clear i think it changes um i think it goes in that direction later in the film um but that question of discipline and of um especially discipline of the body is one we should return to. Yeah. And I, I, my sense is that he is doing it to punish himself, that there is a lot of anger. And, but I, I don't think he's, I think he's actually in some ways more honest about that at the end when he is actually sort of going most off the rails. But when he's yes. in the lead up, he, he doesn't register these facts about himself. I think that's right. Yeah. So let's can we get to the main dramatic thrust of the whole thing. So we've set it up a little bit. He's had, you know, he's, he's leading a challenging existence, um, but he's, he's trying to make the best of it. He's had maybe a sort of short-term affair with another coworker at this abundant life church. Esther didn't go well. And she's kind of always like hovering over him, but the film starts off with one of his few parishioners, Mary uh, coming in and asking for some advice. Her husband, Michael has just gotten out of jail in Canada, he's a radical environmentalist and an activist and was was trying to, like, sabotage tar sand pipes or something. We don't know exactly. And she is pregnant, she tells Ernst Toller, and she's worried because he doesn't think they should bring this baby into the world. And she's concerned about him, and she's upset about that. And so the first 40 minutes or so are getting into... Reverend Toller's attempts to kind of counsel this guy, this, this sort of, this activist, Michael, and to, you know, sort of check in with him. And they have a sort of 
a long conversation in the first in the first part of the movie and basically what he's confronted by is michael's complete despair at the state of the world because of climate change and his his sense that he couldn't explain to his child who he assumes is going to be a daughter uh why he brought this person into the world and and so that's that's sort of the setup and, and so it's about toller trying to care for this person in the beginning i feel like this is for me like i had just had a kid when this film came out i read about it and it was like i cannot watch this right now <laughs> you know <laughs> you know and i think it's how a lot of us sort of relate to things with climate change where it's like oh it's like sort of like this malware software that's operating in the background of our brains and we're like i can't really look at that right now and so i think that really that that the ickiness and the, the discomfort and the possibility of despair really flashes in that conversation and so it's one of the i think it's one of the most interesting parts of the film um so i was wondering like if you had any sort of reactions to that part yeah um two one i'm glad you pointed out that he assumes that it will be a daughter because i was wondering about what the assumptions around gender are there and if he thinks of daughters as more vulnerable in some part of his psyche, this character, right? Um, less able to deal with climate change <laughs> because of whatever gender assumptions they have. So that was interesting. The conversation around despair and abortion was super interesting because Reverend Toller didn't say, sort of give a, a kind of position statement like, abortion is always wrong and therefore you shouldn't have an abortion. He focused what, you know, so we, we didn't know what he believed sort of yeah. outside of context. And I was curious about that because we're representing the theology of a mega church here or a small, you know, a local mega church of some larger church of some kind. Um, but instead related it to um, the sin of despair. <laughs> um, this idea that, losing hope in the future, um, you know, they, he really wrestled with him. And actually, doesn't he refer to his conversation as wrestling with, um, does he say the angel or with Yeah, Jacob? he he does compare, he and he says it's exhilarating. He's like, oh, but I felt which, like I was which, wrestling, I was wrestling, like, you know, like Israel wrestling with the angel. So he felt, yeah, he put himself in the position of Jacob Israel. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. And yeah, he was super engaged by it. And yeah, you imagine that he leads a pretty sleepy life uh, as the curator of a church museum that no one really goes to visit uh, with just a handful of congregants. That intellectual um, challenge that's at once, of course, also pastoral, um, maybe ties back to that first draw to spirituality he has after the crisis in his life where he's reading Chesterton and Merton. And, um, so, yeah, that's, those are my reactions. Yeah, and I, I was, as I was rewatching it this morning, just trying to get some of the, the moments, he talks about, he, he one of his counters is like, oh, like you think there's despair at the prospect of bringing this child into a world that's going to be really destabilized and made dangerous and depressing by, by climate change. And I'm probably, I'm probably underestimating the, the impact, just how I described it there. But he's like, that doesn't compare to being the person who's like partially responsible for having a child taken out of the world as he feels himself to be responsible as someone who encouraged his son into this military career that led to his son's death and ended his family's life. 
basically. So that's one that's one response. And Michael, and I can't help but like sort of looking at like all like the sort of the biblical resonances of the names. Uh, Michael's wife is Mary. I, you know, Michael, I think of the archangel and he does sort of have this kind of fiery possessed quality of like being a righteous soldier that I do sort of see as, as, as sort of fitting with uh, Michael, the archangel's role in different representations. But, you know, Michael's like, well, how did you deal with this? And he goes into this talk about like how, and this, to me, this sounded very, very mainline, this very like kind of Lutheran or conservative Calvinistic line about how reason can't help you that you need courage and he has this interesting i mean maybe it's i don't know maybe this is just sort of generic counseling it it, it struck me though very much he says uh courage not reason is like the antidote to despair wisdom is holding two contradictory truths in our minds simultaneously hope and despair his 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 answer is like i don't i can't i can't argue my way out of despair with you and that the despair you're feeling, he wants to say, is not just despair about the climate, but there's also been existential despair always, he says. And he wants to subsume Michael's climate despair under this kind of existential despair, which is a move that I found, I guess, troubling. I mean, it seems like kind of dismissal in, in a certain way or denial of the uniqueness of the situation. And I think that one of the big questions of this film for me is like how personal crisis relates to planetary crisis. And so he's going to keep, they have a conversation and he feels like exhilarated by it, but it's, it's very, it's, I think it's exhilarating because it's very challenging. He's being pushed on his theology. He's being pushed on his spirituality. And I think he, he, he's hungry for that because he, he's very critical of the theology of the megachurch and their kind of spirituality. Uh, and his, his boss the uh cedric the El- cedric the entertainer cedric the elder cedric the entertainer <laughs> is is critical of him he's like oh you're just like sort of like a thomas merton wannabe you're too serious you're you know you're you're not engaged in practical life enough and stuff he's like he's giving museum tours i don't know whatever like that's that's practical life i guess but but yeah there's a kind of condescension there about his intellectualism he is supposed to keep having these conversations with michael though that's that's part of the, this is supposed to be the beginning of a conversation. He he's he you know, Toller is interested to keep having these conversations. Michael seems like also like attuned to it and willing to do it, but something gets in the way of this pretty quickly, and it's Michael's spouse Mary finding a a suicide vest with explosives in their garage. Like shortly after this first conversation, she calls Reverend Toller over. What should we do? He takes the suicide vest away. And then when he's supposed to meet Michael at a the Red Diamond Trail of like a local like a local hiking hiking area, he finds that he that Michael has killed himself. And that's like a very graphic scene. And so we have we have like that's a sort of arc with Michael. And he basically helps Mary like cover up all of the kind of potential violence that Michael was involved in. They take, you know, they've taken the vest away. They, that he get he gets, he takes Michael's computer with him, which he uses then for all kinds of bizarre internet searches about suicide bombing later. Um, and he finds the last one Testament, the instructions for the funeral service, the memorial service and so on and so forth. And so he's very involved in, trying to 
curate the memory of Michael and trying to honor him. Um, and so, this yeah. is this is where we see that shift, precisely where his what was this theological debate that he's so engaged with, we start to see him being pulled over in Michael's direction, which is in itself interesting. The way that relates to Michael's um, suicide, because this is the moment where he says, you know, hide anything that that looks like terrorism because he doesn't use that word uh because we don't want to sully the cause his righteous cause and it's like whoa okay guess that you've come over to the other side at this point i think that was a turning point for the character and i was really interested in this too because right in the beginning toller is supposed to be the spiritual guide for michael but in michael's absence he starts to take the path that Michael had fashioned for himself. Like he starts to become disillusioned. He starts to become obsessed with climate change. He, he is ready to use the suicide vest himself. And I was like, there's this total reversal. And it, it, it's, it, it goes back to my question though, because as he's get you know, part of the plot that relates to this and his own radicalization over the course of the film, because that's sort of what the film shows you is, is and again with the journal this is like for, he he doesn't write in the journal i'm going to blow up my church i'm going to blow up my boss i'm going to blow up the local energy magnet who is who's the in chief yeah right yeah who's the person who has funded my whole existence and who's the donor that makes my job possible and who's the one who's going to revamp and rededicate the church that's like really that path really is what sets him Thinking through all that is what brings him to his his crisis and his decision to try to re- reuse the suicide vest. But it's my point is is like there's this intimate connection between his own self stylization as a political radical, as an apocalyptic like fire and brimstone preacher, and the sort of crises between his personal life and the sort of larger politics. But like going back to the journal. He doesn't say any of that in the journal. It's not like he's like, I'm going to blow up my church. He doesn't say, he doesn't like, the, the film shows you that he's radicalizing. It shows you that he's searching on YouTube for how to use a suicide vest and all this stuff. He doesn't say any of it. And I, I find that disconnect so striking. Well, actually, it's your observation about his alcoholism that makes me realize in retrospect that there's such a disconnect in this character between his motivations and his actions that I suppose now when I think about it, I had initially the same reaction you did. Where is this coming from? Or why is this not showing up in the journal? Now it's that connection to the alcoholism and the self-opaque... Opacity. Is opaqueness the word? Opacity, thank you. The self-opacity that you've pointed out, now I see a certain pattern there. Yeah, I think and I think that's right. I think that's totally it. And of course, like we said before, you said before, like the alcoholism is a way of punishing himself. And he's literally become sick with stomach cancer. Like we don't know if it's the alcoholism, of course it couldn't have helped, but just the internalization of all this pain and, or just bad luck or whatever, uh, it's, it's been internalized and it's only becoming explicit like over the course of the film that he's very sick, but it's, he's buried it deep inside of him the way he sort of 
even as he's trying to write this journal, he's burying like what's really going on in, in, you know, it's not even showing up in the words. We get it more in the, the scriptural verses he goes to. And this is like sort of our tie into the themes of the podcast. Like he starts as he's becoming more and more aware of his employer and his church's complicity in climate change, its connections to this industrialist balk, B- balk, B-A-L-Q, balk. He balks at all their, 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 <laughs> their suggestions about things. He is like sort of turning to like the book of Revelation, Ephesians about we're not fighting powers of flesh and blood, that kind of thing. Oh yeah, the book of Re- Revelation, which he refers to as Revelations. Yes. Y- yeah. <laughs> but that must be, you know, that's that's a whole thing. Like every like that's how everyone thinks it is. Like there's got to be a reason for that. I don't know totally what the reason for that is, but is it is, is it King James? Yeah, is it a King happens. James thing? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, anyway, but yeah, that's that's true. You're right. Yeah, he, but he quotes from it. Um, he quotes from it as he's like cleaning up like the historical gravesite. That's part of his job to like monitor. And that's when he gets the barbed wire. <laughs> he he finds a dead rabbit in the barbed wire as he's picking up the trash in this historical graveyard. And the, the what's funny to me is that the bleakness of this film is like very much connected to like the Hudson Valley and the Albany area. And you have like these, I, I don't know if people, I, I think, I don't know, I think they're just in New York state. There's like this sort of public, it's a great depression, New Deal era, public historical program of putting up these historical markers across New York state and they all have the same sign. And the one they're using is fake. It's a very good fake for first reformed. Um, but the film is not shot in the Albany area. It's shot in Brooklyn and Queens. And the church is Zion Episcopal church in Queens. It's, it's not, it's not, it's not even a reformed church. And I don't think it's even that old. Um, but yeah, that, I thought, I thought that was interesting that it, it has all this sort of like, upstate and chill swag vibes but it's like it's actually it's just it's just shot in the in the boroughs it's just in the five boroughs like no big deal um so i thought that was funny I mentioned another sort of major plot development is that there's going to be a rededication of First Reformed that Bulk Industries is funding. And Bulk is going to be a speaker at the rededication. The governor of New York State is going to be there. Kathy Hochul is going to be there. Uh, I guess at the time it was, it was Cuomo. <laughs> um, Paul Schrader was no fan of Andrew Cuomo. I guess no one was. They meet the three of them, Cedric the Entertainer, Cedric the Entertainer, yeah, Reverend Jeffers, Toller and Balk meet at a diner and they're talking about the rededication and Balk has these glossy programs and he's like, but it's the service isn't going to be political, right? Both the ministers like, well, no, it's not going to be political. And then Balk pulls out a printout of a local news coverage of, of Michael's funeral that, that Toller was at, that was held at like a former toxic waste site. And like, you see all this, wreckage and it's really dystopian and really post-industrial waste kind of thing basically bulk calls toller out for bringing abundant life into this political moment and being used by the environmental activists and like not realizing how complicated of an issue this is and so on and so forth and we're starting to see how toller is 
going down Michael's path because he he snaps back and he's like, well, he, he quotes Michael. He's like, well, God forgive us for what we've done to the earth. Well, God forgive us. And Balk is Balk is like, how do you, you know, how do you know what the mind of God is? Which is something that Toller said to Michael earlier when, when Michael's like, well, how, like, how does this all make sense? And, and, you know, you know, he moves in mysterious ways, whatever. And then this evil industrialist throws that very line back in his face he also throws back in his face that, oh, you were counseling the guy who killed himself. Well, look at you. You're a failure. And I was really struck by this scene. And I, I feel like when people are being bullied, like two things can be true simultaneously. The bully is like very effective at being cruel and mean and humiliating. But the bully is also like kind of ridiculous. So like the so Balk is like oh like well maybe you shouldn't judge others until you judge yourself like look how bad a job you did like look at me I'm just pol- I'm just the f- fifth worst polluter in the entire world but you could you know like <laughs> and like it's like this it's you know and to blame a counselor on the the, the suicide of someone is just like also like and yeah is is wildly irresponsible and, and unfounded but anyway. Um, but I just wanted to say that it's I think this is something you see with with bullying that where the person who's doing the bullying is like ridiculous and cruel and that the, the what's what's so like diabolical about bullying is that the person who's being bullied can't leverage the ridiculousness of the person of the bully in the moment. Like you can only see it later, but like in the moment you're just being you just feel the cruelty, but you can't actually like do anything about it unless unless you're like unless you're sort of swifter of thought and more self-possessed than, than I am. And I imagine a lot of people are in those instances, but yeah. So yeah, that's the setup is the rededication and the, the path we're on in this film is realizing that Toller is going to use the suicide vest at the rededication ceremony. Like we're getting hints of it throughout the film. We spoil all the movies. I'm sorry. It's just we have to. It's just it's just part of <laughs> part of what this means. Um, so maybe I'll put a warning about that at the top of the episode. But yeah, he is. That's the we're, we're seeing him get closer and closer. We see him getting these diagnoses that he's he himself is very ill, and we are waiting for him to commit this act of violence that he has like different levels of fantasy about. Like he watches videos of a suicide bomber just like disappearing in a puff of smoke and you feel like, Oh, you just want to disappear. But then you also have the political apocalyptic overtones. Then as you brought up, you, you, you were, you were saying the questionable pastoral practices of, of Reverend yes. Toller. So how would you describe his approach to dealing with this woman in grief? Who's dealing with some mental health issues? Like what's, what's their, what's their, what's their, their thing? So, so she's looking for, a certain kind of comfort. She's come over to his house. It's just the two of them. So already awkward. Um, He's drinking. Awkward. <laughs> He's drinking. Uh, we're at his house. They choose when she shows up. You know, he has a choice to invite her in or say, "Let's go for a walk." You know, it's the middle um, of the night too. But yeah, true. that's that is true. Um, but you know, go down to the cafe or something where there are other people. There are ways to do this. Um, and. Uh, and so she, she comes in and, you know, that's, you know, in certain moments, that's really unavoidable. And she says, you know, I've got these racing thoughts. I'm not okay. Um, and she starts describing something she did with her husband when she um, had had these feelings before. He would, uh, she would lie on top of him. Who? Yes, he would lie down on the ground. She would lie down on top of him. So they'd have like a lot of 
um, surface area, physical contact, right? One person directly on top of the other, feet touching feet, hands touching hands, heads floating right above one another. And that, and they would look in each other's eyes and, and, you know, do some slow breathing and it would calm her down. And so his next move is to say, oh, do you want me to do that? <laughs> Instead of yeah. recognizing that what she's looking for is a sense of calm and comfort and that, you know, that's really not an appropriate thing for him to offer. He's not a spouse. He's not a lover. He's providing pastoral care. So yeah, um, he could breathe with her, right? You know, there are lots of options. He picks And this he one. does pray with her at an earlier scene. Like she asked him to pray with her. That's true. But you keep having these moments where yeah. like, it, he, it's, it's, it's the part you're talking about is odd because the film makes it seem as though he does initially, he's like sort of anticipating what she wants. And it turns out she yes. does want to do, it's not, like he, it's not like he forces her into it exactly, but like he should be aware that what she, what she thinks she wants at that moment might not be, what's best for both of them. Um, that's like part of being, that's part of being like the person who is the guide. But like, of course we've seen, he's not really a guide. He's being led by these people who he's supposed to be taking care of like the whole way through. Right. Yeah. And so now do you want to talk a little bit about Esther and Mary? Cause we have these two women in his life, Esther with whom he's had, you know, a fling basically. And he's told her it's not going to work out. He's, um, his first marriage was a disaster after his son was killed and they broke up and he's just not cut out for a relationship. And she's, you're not, and Esther's response is, you know, you're not made for love. Like everyone is made for love. And he's like, no, but Esther, you know, is she's not young and beautiful and Mary is young and beautiful. And she's just been widowed just like he uh, has is now alone. And, um, it's real awkward. It's real awkward. This, these two women around him with some romantic attachment. He tells Esther off uh, at yeah. church in this really disturbing scene, um, where he, you know, shouts at her, shouts her down, and says that he, he does he say he hates her? He says he despises he, her. He despises her. It's he really, calls her. It's he calls her a stumbling block. Watch. It's it's really yeah. harsh. You could see where what set him off though, because she's like she's like very she's trying to nur- be nurturing and supportive and kind, and she thinks he can't take care of himself. She's right, and <laughs> but she wants to save him, and she's asking about his doctor's appointment, and he's like, "Oh, I just need some more tests," and she's like, "She's actually called the doctor and knows what's going on," and so like you could see where that would upset someone. <laughs> oh yeah, she totally crosses a line. Um, and also calling someone a stumbling block, just theologically speaking, it's just, it's gross. Like people are not stumbling blocks. Ew. Um, so it's, yeah, again, a moment of terrible theology, but yeah, of course it's an understandable conflict. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but then we have this, like, uh, I think you asked this amazing question. Is she, um, about Mary? Oh, she is Mary a a magical pixie dream girl. And I love this question. Um, because it does, feel like we have a movie about a man's psyche and inner struggle and yeah. he's serious and important and theological and we have you know the association with a male suicide and for a righteous cause and the question between questions about martyrdom versus terrorism right not in those words but it's clearly on display it's all associated with the boys and then we have these women um, who are I think turned into girls uh, I'm, I'm not impressed with um, 
their character development uh, in terms of the Bechdel test, right? We don't. I don't think this would pass. In fact, do we even? No, have no, talking? It, it absolutely wouldn't pass. So, yeah. And I, I find like her level of mourning or not mourning a little bit strange too. Like she kind of just goes from and like maybe there's like, I don't know. She's she's in shock, obviously, but she's like basically seems pretty fine after her husband's blown his head off. Like, which is just like. I don't know. Things do take time to develop in terms of dealing with things, which makes their sort of budding relationship all the more disturbing between her and Toller. But yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll get there about the, the magical. Well, let's, we can just, we can sort of just say it right now. I mean, when I asked this question, like I, cause I actually, don't, I sort of in, in my notes, I, I like put the ending of the movie as almost sort of the sort of, the, the deus ex machina moment of this movie is a little bit of a stumbling block for me. So basically when the last time he sees her, because she's going to move to Buffalo, you know, some other part of the wilds of upstate New York or whatever, um, she is going to go stay with her sister. And she's like, but I'm going to come back for the rededication of First Reformed. And you know something's up when he's like, oh, you should not come back Don't for that. Don't come. <laughs> Do not come. Do you hear me? Do not come. Yeah, it's really intense. Yeah. And she's we have like, another moment of him shouting, shouting at a woman. Again. Yeah, yeah, totally. And she's like, okay. And so the the morning, the last 15 minutes of the movie are like, the, like are t- have this tension on multiple levels, which I do like. Because like the service is supposed to start. And he hasn't shown up. And you have that moment where like, oh, like this very public speaking and like whole like thing is about to happen and it's not going the way it's supposed to. And you can feel everyone, uh, Reverend Jeffers, Balk, the governor, Mary, like everyone's like sort of freaking out. And you see him like putting on a suicide vest with like patches of icons of dead environmentalists on it. When the first time you see him put on the suicide vest or, or, or sort of take it out, it's a, a detail that I found like just exploded my brain was the, the closet door is open behind him and you can see the burial flag of his son in the closet, like it, 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 which was like a, tri- a flag folded into a triangle in a glass case. Mm-hmm. And he puts on the vest and then he stands at attention at the foot of his bed. And so like, there's this whole like like Marshall theme happening there and it's connecting it's connecting to all his trauma we also hear the organ playing a hymn as everyone's waiting for the service to begin and the hymn is of course onward christian soldiers so we have that idea of martyrdom and of um of heading toward an intentional death for one's beliefs that's right in the background yeah it's very well done yeah that so that part's fantastic and so you that's a great that's a great detail and so he's getting ready he's he's putting on his cassock like everything he's getting ready and he's got the suicide vest underneath and the service is late and he's about to turn and go into the the the, the church and he sees mary who's very pregnant or you know like again the whole thing started with the debate about well can you bring a child into the world she's like visibly pregnant she's going into the building that he's going to blow up and kill himself in and he totally freaks out and to his credit <laughs> he does not go forward with the the suicide the suicide vest attack on the church and his boss and the governor and balk and everyone uh it's 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 he chooses life there's a weird sort of pro-life 
sort of weird set of connotations with all this stuff. But he instead takes out the the uh, the barbed wire that he found the dead bunny in and like lashes himself with it. He sort of does like this self-flagellation and ties himself up in it, puts the cassock back on and is about to drink a he, he an amazing scene he take he's been drinking the whole movie he has like this this whiskey glass full of whiskey which he like throws on the wooden floor and fills it up with drano great shots of fluid in this movie earlier there's a shot of him putting pepto-bismol into his whiskey and the camera just like shows like the the, like the strands of pepto-bismol in the whiskey you see the viscosity of the drano in the cup and the bubbles and 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 so on and so forth. He's about to drink that, and then he turns. And it's around. the Drano that he's used earlier yeah. to try and unclog the toilet because that's what pastors do. That was like a this moment yeah, that, 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 of extreme that's realism brilliant. that I didn't understand yeah. until later when I was like, oh, we're connected. Right. This he, too. The building isn't working. Obviously, the organ doesn't work. The plumbing yeah. doesn't work. And he's trying to fix it himself. And he's using all this Drano as he's peeing blood into the toilet or whatever. But he just right. he's about to drink it, and he turns around and. Mary's there and she's just like Ernst and he drops the glass. It does not break, but the drain is all the floor and they just passionately embrace. Um, meanwhile, Esther has been singing that song was it lean on his arms or lean. It's, it's, it's uh, leaning on the everlasting arms, leaning on the yeah. everlasting arms. She's Esther, the, the woman he's, he spurned has been singing this because the, the, the minister hasn't showed up yet. That's constantly being sung in the background. The camera just like revolves around. They're like sort of spinning in a circle, like making out as Esther's singing. And then it just cuts to black, like mid verse. Um, and so, yeah, that's how, that's how it ends. So, Oh, okay. Can I get really nerdy here? Please. The song makes sense. The accompaniment and her voice makes sense until the very, very end when it's like the verse, I don't remember exactly, but the verse or chorus um, of the organ suddenly is going with the wrong part of the of the voice. In other words, like so the the organ's playing a verse and she goes to the chorus. Right at the end, there's this. It's not dissonance exactly, but you, huh? You can catch that it's it's like very slightly off right before we cut to black, and that was an interesting moment too. Um, we got to huh. talk about the alb, right? He's wearing the white priestly garment, right? Whereas before we've seen him in the black cassock with the white surplus over the top. Now in this scene where you have like the blood coming through from the barbed wire, when he embraces her, he's cutting himself. Like love is hurting in that moment, right? Um, and we have these blood stains. What did you make of that scene or that part of the scene? Klaus? A few things. I had a question. It wasn't I, When I first saw it, I assumed the barbed wire was still on. I wasn't sure the second time I watched it whether it was still on or not because okay. it doesn't – you would think if it was, it would be poking out. The blood is coming through, and you're right. He's wearing white, and for me, that was a real – that was like a real reference or sign of connection with the book of Revelation where there's an emphasis on like pure white liturgical garments and people being washed mm -hmm. in blood, cleansed in blood. Like that's – you see that a lot in revelation in, in various moments. So that kind of gets into the apocalyptic dynamics of the whole thing. But I think you're right. It's really important to point out that he's gone from wearing black most of the film to wearing white. And we have this sort of transfiguration, this kind of apocalyptic transfiguration. But for me, like again, this, and this gets back into the whole magic uh, frantic pixie dream girl thing. Like I'm just like, what does it mean to end this film with, this this sort of like 
like eros or like their their sort of their passion like to to this affirmation of like sex and life and romance and, and i just had all these questions of just like okay like it's good she stopped him from drinking a full glass of Drano. That's good. But, you know, it's just, and of course, like, films don't have to answer all these questions. But, like, it does, you know, you are left with the question, like, well, what's going to happen next? Like, <laughs> like, the suicide vest, you know, the barbed wire. Like, what's, are they just going to ride off into the sunset? Like, what, like, what are we supposed to, I don't know. Like, I was, I was, I was a little bit, I was, I was struggling with that. And this is where I think that musical moment for me helped me get that we were not it was not an ending that was meant meant to make sense right I think your reaction is exactly what we were going for a non-ending a non-resolution a sort of um cataclysm instead of sort of mimicking actually you know the predictions of climate change and what will happen a kind of mini apocalypse moment laden with symbolism um from both what he's wearing uh, references. I actually, I think I'm remembering one of the at one of the moments where we listen to the youth choir. They're talking about being washed in the blood. Yeah, they, to- they totally are. They, totally they are, are right. Yeah. Okay, so we have all of that, um, and the reason I was into this Pixie Dream Girl interpretation is because it's she's not a. I don't think Mary is a f- character that makes much sense. Is very fleshed out, and so she seems like she's being used in this moment. That's that's part of what um, I'm saying too. Yeah, that it's it's just like. She, her character is a little sketchy. I think she's played very well by Amanda Seyfried, Seyfried, who is from like the same area I grew up in. She actually looks like people from where I grew up. Like the sort of, she, she looks, she looks PA Dutch to me or German, but yeah. Um, but so it's funny. Uh, she was, the first thing I ever saw her in was Mean Girls, which she, she plays like sort of a comic role in Mean Girls. Anyway, um, but yeah, I, I feel like I was, I feel like her whole role is is like like sort of manic pixie dream girl savior, like saving the yeah. the distraught male character with 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 arrows with with attraction. I was just right, like, but she's not trying to save. Right, the the sin of of Esther is that she's trying that's to right. be the rescuer. You're right. You're right. It's so it's that's the that's the that's why it has to be this manic pixie dream girl thing because it has to be like kind of just who she is and manic and impulsive. And it's funny because, like, Esther, it's like you were talking about, like, oh, it's an older woman versus a younger woman. Like, Esther actually is, like, very attractive. But she's, like, so, like, churchified. Like, yeah. and, like, sort of, she doesn't have, like, and the other the other key difference is uh, Taller asks Mary at one point, like, oh, are you also an environmentalist? Are you an activist? And she's like, I am. I shared Michael's beliefs. They make it so confessional. I shared his beliefs but I choose life. I want to have this baby. I believe in life. I don't want to give into the despair. So she's like, she's also like spiritually and theologically and politically the solution for him that she's like, right. she, like he's seeing the world in a new way, but it doesn't have to be the, like the, the logical end point of that doesn't have to be the, the sort of the, the, the end of a barrel of a shotgun, the point at your head. Right. And like, that's what she represents. But that means like, she's a symbol and not a person. I think is like what, what it comes down to. So this ending, I want to return to just briefly this idea of, you know, what is, what are we supposed to make of this other than sort of scratching our heads? There's that kind of magical realism almost moment at the, when they're doing the body on body touching where they start flying through the universe. The magical um, mystery tour. Yeah. The magical mystery tour. Exactly. Um, and it felt 
related to that in that we were sort of entering something that wasn't easily interpreted or understood. Yeah. This is an arty moment in the film and it felt arty. Um, not necessarily in a bad way, um, but that we were just sort of transcending a kind of uh, plot that could be imagined in the in a kind of realism context, in a realistic context. So I wonder what you would make of comparing this ending to a Flannery O'Connor short story, um, where we sometimes have these kind of apocalypses these explosions usually death is happening at the end and on the one hand i feel like we avoided that because um the church exploding would feel somewhat like the ending of some o'connor short stories except that hers usually are totally unexpected um oh oh wow or largely unexpected in a way that this wasn't and somehow um the association with violence the question of whether he's still um, wrapped in um, the barbed wire, though he's rejected suicide um, in two different forms. Uh, we still have blood. We still have, you know, um, sacrificial Christian symbolism going on. Yeah. Uh, to me, had some, yeah. Well, I want to say, I think the point you're raising about how the, you know, the Flannery O'Connor show story has an apocalyptic surprise. I think that's the problem of the film. The, the, the writer's problem of the film is we're building towards this potential act of cataclysmic violence with the bombing of the church. In, in many ways, this is actually similar to the plot of Taxi Driver, where it's building up towards the assassination of a presidential candidate. Like in Taxi Driver, there's a near miss with that. It doesn't happen. And I was reminded of that, that sort of similarity, where you're building, you've, you're building yourself up to this moment, and then it slips, you know, something slips. I think the problem with, and again, Taxi Driver is actually illuminating because instead of killing the presidential candidate, what Travis Bickle does instead is rescue like a 14-year-old prostitute played by Jodie Foster by killing her pimps and the gangsters and going like, going like the violence does happen. It gets redirected, but he's also like sort of, there's another like, female character who's like sort of got a strange like not fully developed there's like a, it's like this sort of like fantasy of 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 rescue that's enacted in in taxi driver but i think like that's when you don't have the violence like if the film had just ended with the church blowing up yeah you're just like okay i guess that happened i mean like it's it's it, it there is something that is that feels less satisfying about it but i think there was uh, a puzzle as to like what is the dramatic unity of this whole thing and I think uh, the the manic pixie dream girl as Deus Ex Monarchy, you know, was just like one of the ways to get out of it. But I just, I, just, I don't think it totally yeah. works. Do you feel like this was a the ending of the film? We can categorize as a kind of postmodern refusal of at least a tight narrative, logical ending that's meant to open up the question of what do we do with existential eco despair? How do we, how do we navigate that in a way that um, embraces some form of hope, but doesn't lose a kind of some amount of logic. We can't abandon entirely uh, logic uh, in our, the way that we, we respond to and handle 
this yeah i mean i think threat, that at, at most world disaster i think that's right and like that's what it's trying to manage because it's not just trying to manage this plot it's also trying to manage that larger theological political question and i don't think again i thought i think the names are important she's named mary she's pregnant you know there's that kind of incarnational thing i was also reminded of like like the the woman, the portent and the stars in Revelation where the dragon's trying to get the pregnant woman and you had like, which Christians interpret as being Mary, but like, it's probably like Israel or, you know, or something like, 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 uh, and that kind of cosmic drama with the dragon and the pregnant woman. And I was like, oh, that's also like, I see that happening here too. And how you want to, who you want to assign as the dragon and, and all those things is, is, is up to you, I guess. But in terms of heavy handing allegorizing, but yeah. And I think, your question also gets into a question that I have and it's just like, it's, it goes beyond this film, but it's a question of like, like what kind of resources does apocalyptic theology provide us people who have to deal with climate change? Is it a good tool for, for thinking about it? I, I, I don't think it necessarily leads you towards the path of suicide bomber, but like we're at a point in climate change where you have, serious intellectuals who deal with this stuff being like oh like at a certain point like serious civil disobedience and destruction of property through violence is like is what you're gonna have to do and i'm thinking in particular of andreas malm who wrote uh how to blow up a pipe bomb uh but like people you know like we are at a point where like this is becoming less fantastical (laughs) where like serious intellectuals are like well you know like if the green new deal doesn't work and all this stuff doesn't work like we're gonna get to a point where Capitalism is going to cost us our survival on the planet. And so like thinking about that material and then watching this film and teaching a class on apocalypticism, I'm just like, what, like, what are the limits of apocalyptic theology? What's, what could be empowering about it? I know it's a big question, but like, that's what I, that's sort of where I'm at with this is like, you know, what's, what, what does this tradition let you do and how does it limit you? Is like, is something I, I, I'm wrestling with. I think easiest, um, the easiest response is to say that apocalyptic theology can lead to really irresponsible acts of violence that um, don't accomplish the ends that they're meant to, right? And so it's easy to sort of dismiss it as a whole and say, we can't found a kind of politics on apocalyptic theology without being in serious danger of um, losing sight of what is most important um, and so I would say it's just a, it's a sticky question. And it's a sticky realm of theology to sort of say, okay, we're going to have an ethics and a politics that's grounded here in these texts. On the other hand, one of the things I've talked about with students uh, about what gives rise to apocalyptic theology is exactly. the sense of um, the conditions for the possibility of apocalyptic theology are always a sense that you are in a losing game. And that nothing short of the world turning around is worth talking about anymore. Um, yeah. The world itself, the, the powers of the world have to be brought low. And um, the only way many people can imagine that happening is through supernatural action. Um, and, and the expression of that is often looks like, looks like suicide bombers, looks like... But sometimes also nonviolent resistance, right? I don't want to, there's an array of tactics people use to try and change the world and turn it about in its tracks, which is, of course, what's needed here. As we talked about, 
the, as you said, the initial pastoral conversation between the Reverend and Michael seemed like a dismissal of the specificity of imminent collapse of the natural world because of climate change. It made me cast about for, well, what are there any even slightly um, similar planetary threats um, or at least population, human population threats? The only that come to mind within Western Christian theology would be probably the plague that wiped out huge numbers of folks in Europe. Um, the other would have been nuclear war. Yeah, um, and that's the and I think that, out of the Cold War. I think that's and I think that's what's <clears throat> one of the confusing things. Or I mean, I don't know if it's useful or not, but like, like civilizations that develop the kinds of religions like like apocalyptic Judaism or Christianity and others like like they've been thinking about the end for a long time and we've had different, we've had different crises. And I mean, like, w like our parents dealt with the fear of nuclear warfare. Right. And like, that was, and, and that, that, that danger hasn't totally gone away. Also, we are like, in a, we're in a shooting war in, in, in Eastern Europe right now with a nuclear power. Um, but yeah, like, so I, I also think about that, like how, like how, like obviously the imagery in Revelation is like tracking like the devastation of war, the devastation of plague, the devastation of natural catastrophe. Like all those things are registered in in the book of Revelation in terms of the imagery it uses. And we talked about Catherine Keller's book um, almost two years ago now about this point. But yeah, I know it's, it's it's a real question. And I do think that like what you said, like in terms of the conditions that give rise to apocalyptic theology, they're intensely political and like often are like, from the point of view of the weaker side of a political and military struggle for sure. And I think like that's, you could see why people on the left in the climate organizing would feel that way. I mean, like, you know, like in terms of the, the, uh, the power of, of fossil fuel capital, I mean, and it's embeddedness in, in state power. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, that, that's, those are, those are mammoth forces. So I think like as a representation, it makes total sense. I just, I, I just, I'm still wrestling with, and I think I need to go back to the Keller to think with about like what the idea of an ending or a transformation does in, in the political realm today. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And I think that the film shows like this kind of radical embrace of apocalypticism, but it's again, this going back into the film a little bit in the film, it's impossible to separate that from, Toller's own personal crises. Like he uses the drama of the apocalypse to like redirect away from or interpret his own personal crises. But there's a, the, the film almost seems to, I can't tell if the film is suggesting that whether that's inauthentic or not, like whether it's a cope or whether it's like, it can be both end. You know, it's like, yes, you have personal feelings and the world is destroy, being destroyed. And those, those two things intersect. And so I, I'm not sure if the film is writing off his apocalypticism as in, as inauthentic or being like, no, this is this is this is legit. But he doesn't go through with it. Uh, <laughs> it it doesn't feel to me, yeah, that, and that's worth considering. I think for me, it's not a writing off it, um, of his of the the cause that we see under the hood. This reminds me of the way. Um, it can be frowned upon in academic circles to lean too heavily on the biography of an author when interpreting a text, right? Um, that sense of, oh, these things are separate. Um, this film is insisting that they, are, they go together in a certain way. I think 
it's a much simpler message there that we can't understand these ur dramas, these massive stories about civilizations ending without personalizing it, rendering it yeah. human in some way. And so you have to, in order to sort of be drawn into a story just as a human being, uh, most of us have to, it has to be that personal and political to borrow from the, the feminists, right, uh, together to make it, that those connect, we have to insist upon those connections, that there is no uh, abstracted notion of climate change. It's always already caught up in this. Our personal dramas are yeah. always founded on our I conditions think, think relative totally to right. larger systems. I think that's totally right. And I think like the point is, is like, yes, his, his job is bound up in, in this like death dealing corporations work and this, this, this church that sort of just like hand waves away climate change and human responsibility is like, Oh, maybe it's God's plan, you know, like whatever. And he's right to be angry at those things. Uh, I, I think that I think that I think like the film for me that's something I take away from the film, and that it is like you, as you're saying there has to be a connection between your personal experience and these larger historical forces, and I think like that's that's significant. Uh, you know there there are other choices to make, and of course it's also not we can't lose track of. And maybe the film was gilding the lily a bit with this. He's also like probably dying, you know. <laughs> right. Right. So like that that's also part of I. It seems to be part of what's supposed to be motivation for. The, the ending he's choosing but again he, he he chooses he chooses something different and i think that goes back to his first pastoral conversation with michael where it's about holding two contradictory things in your head at the same time i'm dying the planet's dying but this woman symbolizes life and i want to live and like that's that's it's like it, it is trying to pivot towards wisdom or courage at the end but it's always fraught and it's always failing and it's always complicated I guess that's what I would say. Uh, I think we can just say amen to that. I think <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I think that I think, is the thing. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Like, what was it like watching for you? Very first thing I noticed was stylistic. There's a there's a spare quality yeah. to most of the film uh, that felt on the edge of one of those stripped down black box theater uh, shows I used to go to in LA sure. when I got free tickets, sure. I worked for a theater um, that was meant to distill the, at first it was that personal story of the drama. And then later as a kind of background to our uh, larger, you know, climate slash political narrative that I sort of enjoyed. I enjoyed that, uh, simplification or um, uh, stripping away of my cinematic expectations of representation of certain things, certain scenes. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed the performances, certainly. I enjoyed the questions that were raised. Did Travis the fussy church person, you know, uh, wish that we had done just slightly more research um, yes, but those are very minor, minor quibbles. Um, I find looking into those fussy details entertaining in and of itself. So it entertained me and engaged me that way. I maybe would have liked our magical real mystery tour moment. I enjoyed that we went off the rails there a little bit, but it also felt like the ending uh, in a way where it wasn't. Uh, we had this, the two bodies fl flying through space and it was like, we're, and end scene, right? We're done here. And yeah. we weren't. And so that was a sort of strange, dramatic choice. But I would say generally that I enjoyed the film. 
I might recommend it to particular people, but I would not necessarily say, oh, everyone's going to get a lot out of this. You know, yeah. that's not. I think this is, it's not quite pickled herring, but it might be chicken piccata. Delicious, <laughs> but you need to like sour things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to totally. Enjoy. Yeah, and I think like, I think the way we described the movie, it's come across as like pretty grim and stark and Igmar Bergman-esque. And it is in certain ways, like Igmar Bergman meets uh, Scorsese in certain ways. There, there are like, like you talked about the moment where they do magical mystery tour, that kind of surrealism where they're like, it reminds me of the film Koyanis Katsi, which is another sort of climate apocalypse film. But you sort of see, have these grand vistas and, and sort of, they're floating over these cliffs and it's beautiful. And then it goes really dark and they're in like these industrial waste areas. They're sort of floating together body to body. And you actually see Michael in one of the tugboats that's in the toxic bay, toxic waste harbor. You see Michael and to what to me looks like a statue of the Virgin Mary on, on the tugboat. I'm not totally sure what it is, but Michael's definitely in the tugboat. Um, wow. So there's that. And so like, there's that kind of, again, like sort of mapping on with the, the ending that has this sort of sort of like not totally realistic moment that you were talking about. And there's also funny moments in the film too. Like when Esther like has like the pitch pipe at the service for Michael by the toxic waste dump and the, and the youth choirs there, that part is just like <laughs> so funny. <laughs> So there is there is there is some there's some play and there's some irony. There's a great line where like Ethan Hawke's very seriously talking to uh, Reverend Jeffers, Cedric the Entertainer and he's like does God really want us to destroy our own world? And, and Jeffers like well he he just he destroyed it himself, you know, for 40 days and 40 nights in the Bible. He's done it, you know, and that was a great moment, I'm, I think. I may or may not have yelled at the TV screen, and he promised never to do it again in that moment, but it's fine. <laughs> right, it's fine. right, 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 right. Anyway, I guess we can wrap oh, up. Oh, but that same scene, uh, yeah. Reverend Jeffers, like, twirls in his chair and rolls his eyes. Completely brilliant. Oh, yeah. Um, when he's listening to our main character sort of go off, it's just... Oh, I love that. scene's that. really tough because it's, it has these amazing moments like that. But it's a scene where Jeffers is like, you're an alcoholic. Your health's in real, problem, in real trouble. Mm-hmm. And you should not preside over this rededication ceremony. And you see just Ethan Hawke just like desperately like, no, I need to be there. I want to introduce you. I want to, you know, clinging like all sincerity to this ridiculous, like, I want to be the one to introduce you. Like, it's like so like, you've already been humiliated. You're not going to even say anything real. And like... But you're, he's holding on so he can, he can enact his apocalyptic destiny. You know, as as like this this spiritual. It's it's so. There's levels. Um, there are levels. Yeah, there's some really disturbing levels to that scene for sure. When yeah. you realize that, of course, Reverend Jeffers is going to be killed if he. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let me like, introduce you slash murder. I'm going you. to murder oh. you, the governor, and. Yeah. Like, and that's 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 the other part of the. <laughs> Sorry, we can't let go of this one. Like, like you understand, like, you know why he's angry at the church, why he's angry at state elites, why Balk is, is one of the, you know, not powers of flesh and blood, but, you know, like the sort of the dark spiritual authorities or whatever, powers and principalities. But you're like, there's going to be a lot of other people there too who maybe don't deserve to get blown up by you, you know? Anyway. Well, it's also, yeah, cutting the head off the beast. Um, another seven are going to grow back in its place. Yeah. It seems like, yeah. like this little... Even if you take his method seriously, this is, you know, 
will certainly draw attention to the cause. Is it the kind of attention that's going to bring about this other world, this other way of being? Uh, but and I think that's way. that's what's tough. It's like the he thinks he's doing waging like spiritual warfare, but mm-hmm. I think what we're supposed to take away is he's actually given into despair in spite of himself, and that that's what the intervention, the sort of interception by Mary at the end is like stopping him from fully committing to just like this sort of disguised despair. And it's like, Oh, well maybe they're going to go be serious activists together after the, you know, I don't know. Again, we don't have to know how the film, what happens afterwards. It, it, it kind of doesn't matter. It is. I do still have a lot of questions about it, but like, it's, it, you know, I think a film that does a better job at a non-ending abrupt non-ending is um, just pulling this one out. No country for old men has like a very mysterious, like, not like refusing to end in a traditional sort of narrative way. And um, I think that's kind of the vibe it's going for. Yeah. Anyway, well, it's been awesome. It's been awesome going into the, going into this film with you. We sort of flexing our cinematic muscles once again, uh, talking about the apocalypse and, 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 and the uh, attendant demonic forces at work in it. But yeah, thanks for, thanks for doing, thanks for doing this with me, Travis. And yeah, we have stuff coming out, I guess, at some point soon. <laughs> I don't know. Stay tuned. We'll certainly be returning to Dante for at least another episode. So with that, thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.